Well, you can uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Uh, we're in a little mini-series in the book of Acts this morning called Taking the Stand. And uh, we started that last week, and uh, it's incredibly important to be reminded as we look through the book of Acts at the importance of taking the stand for Jesus Christ and the call uh, for every believer to really take the stand in one sense or another for Jesus Christ. The varying degrees were called to stand for Jesus Christ. There are many, as I noted last week throughout history, who have done this so powerfully well. We looked last week at Martin Luther, but this week I want to maybe bring to your mind someone you're familiar with, a man by the name of Eric Little. Uh, Eric Little won the 1924 Olympics. He was the, the, the famous Olympian who determined that he wasn't going to race on Sundays, and so he dropped out of the 100 meters, and instead he ran the 400 meters, something that was outside of his, his discipline, his area of focus, and he ended up winning the gold medal in, in incredible fashion. But what you might not know about Eric Little was that at the very height and pinnacle of his athletic career, he left the athletic domain in the athletic arena to pursue a missionary life. He, he was expected to win the next Olympics, but he left uh, human glory, and he left the accolades of men, and he left the prizes that were his, and the money that was going to be uh, ushered his way because of his victories, and he left it all for the cause of Jesus Christ, and he went to China. And he spent a lot of difficult years in China. It was incredibly, incredibly hard missionary work. And at the end of his life, he spent two years in a Japanese concentration camp. And what's so fascinating there is that they were treated horribly in these concentration camps. They were, food rations were pitiful. They got one small ration of food a day, and it was an incredibly selfish environment. And, and what happened was that most of the people began to fight for themselves and for their own rights in these kind of situations. That's often what happens under the stress of the circumstances. You're just trying to survive. You're just trying to make it through. And so that kind of selfishness that is inherent in all of our sinful flesh begins to manifest itself in so many different ways. But what was said about Eric Little that in these concentration camps, he was the exact opposite of that. While everybody else was becoming more selfish, he was becoming more selfless. Powerful story of a man who lived for Jesus Christ in really incredibly difficult, unjust circumstances, and it was said about him that he became the most respected person in the prison camp, listen to this, because of his attitude and because of his character. They stuck out so clearly in the midst of a lack of character and poor attitudes. I think of a man like Eric Little and the challenges that he faced, and what's so interesting to me is that the challenges he faced did not change his character. The challenges he faced simply became an opportunity to put his character on display so that others might see and be attracted, and that's exactly what happened. His character of humility and selflessness was an attraction to so many people to come to him and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God gave him so many opportunities to put Christ on full display. So often the primary way, we need to understand this in the Christian life, the primary way we see someone's commitment to Christ is in their character. Oftentimes, we want to attribute somebody's commitment to Christ by their actions and their behavior, when really what we see is that true commitment manifests itself in Christ-like character first. 
For God is not only in the business of saving people, he's in the business of sanctifying people, making them increasingly more like Jesus Christ. His expressed plan for his people is to produce in them the character and the life of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to know that that is God's uh, sole purpose in your life. It's to make you more and more like Jesus. That's his objective for you. One of the primary qualities of Christ-likeness is this kind of unwavering character. Paul puts this on full display in our text this morning, and we can see here that unwavering character is absolutely necessary for taking the stand for Jesus. I think that more damage has been done by the character of Christians who claim to speak for Christ and stand for Christ maybe than perhaps anything else in all of history. Conversely, listen, if our character is impeccable, if it is unwavering, our stand for Jesus is strengthened. The opportunities to speak for Jesus are increased abundantly. Generally speaking, there's always two ways to respond to our circumstances, with humility or with pride. Humility is always the better path, even though it is Rarely, if ever, the easier path. Humility is the character quality that must define our actions and behavior as we take the stand for Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul puts on display for us. He has the opportunity to choose to respond to his circumstances with pride or with humility. And humility rules the day every time for Paul. It is a powerful display of unwavering character. And we want this kind of character for followers of Christ. So as we jump into the text... This morning, let's read it together, beginning at verse 16. We'll read the first section. Back up to 15, we'll just kind of remind ourselves of the context. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nansen of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They're all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walking uh, to our customs, according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Here's what we can learn as we look at the life and ministry of Paul. We can glean some things about the kind of unwavering character that he puts on display. And the first is this, the unwavering character is produced by humbly submitting, not pridefully resisting. Unwavering character is produced by humbly submitting, 
not pridefully resisting. You see, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. You remember the context. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. He had been on the tail end of his third missionary journey. He's bringing in a gift to the church there in Jerusalem. He had stopped along the way at all the churches that he had planted, and as he encouraged them and ministered to them, he encouraged them also to give a gift to the church in Jerusalem. They were suffering greatly for the cause of Christ. They were needy and impoverished, all because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. So Paul arrives here in Jerusalem, but what's so fascinating, you may recognize, or you may notice this, that there was actually nothing said about the gift itself that he brought to the church. It's almost as if it's now in the background, and I believe by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that that's true. I think they likely received this gift with gratitude, but there's a bigger issue that's come into play now, and this is the issue that ultimately will drive Paul to take the stand officially before the world powers in Rome. Paul is met by the believers initially with a warm reception. And I love that. They welcome him back as a brother. They embrace him. And the first thing they do is they begin to share stories of how the Lord has been blessing. The Lord has used their ministry. So Paul begins to recount, and you can just think back through the book of Acts. He begins to walk back through all of the things that the Lord has done, the miracles that have been formed, the the churches that had been planted, the thousands of people who have come into the kingdom of the beloved Son. They have been snatched out of the domain of darkness and you'll notice that as they, they share these things, by the way, there's such an important principle there. We need to rejoice and praise God for what he is doing in our midst, amen? This is something that Christians so often fail to do. We so often get caught up in our circumstances and we can focus on the negative things. And I find myself even guilty of this at times in my life. It's easy for me to see the hard things, the difficult things, and to find myself grumbling and complaining because my circumstances aren't ideal. And I fail to see that God has been working in so many powerful ways. And it's important that we pause and we just reflect on all the things that God has done so that we can give him the rightful praise that he deserves. And I love that when he shares about his ministry, he wants to point to the fact that God has done all of this, not him. This isn't Paul getting glory for himself. It's not Paul saying, look what I've done. Look how special I am. It's Paul saying, look what God has done through my ministry. And so they share, and, and then uh, the Jerusalem council that's there, those leaders that are there. By the way, you'll notice the text tells us that this group, it's a very formal kind of gathering. It's headed up by a man named James, and we are familiar with James. He is the half-brother of Jesus. He is uh, the leader of this church. He's an incredibly humble man. Church history tells us that he was a man of prayer. They said his knees looked like the knees of a camel because he spent so much time praying. They're calloused and rough. He's a godly man. And he shares, too, this group does, uh, that God has been working in Jerusalem as well, that there have been multitudes of people who have been saved. But then he points to a, a significant problem, potentially, that exists through all of these Jews who are now followers of Jesus Christ. It says here in the Word of God that they are zealous for the law. Did you notice that at the end of verse 20? They're zealous for the law. In other words, they've been brought out of Judaism and they haven't abandoned the law, right? That's, there's a transition taking place as they come out of this religion that they're, they're so steeped in, all of the practices and the rituals, and they still adhere to so much of their Jewish background and Jewish principles. The law still has meaning for them. They haven't abandoned it completely. Now, it doesn't tell us here that they're relying upon the law for their salvation, so don't be confused here. They're not pushing the law as something that has to be adhered to to be saved. 
they're simply zealous for the law. They appreciate the law. They practice aspects of the law. And here's the potential problem that's arisen, as Paul finds out, that these Jews have been told that Paul now teaches Jews who live with Gentiles, amongst Gentiles, to forsake the law, to forsake the teachings of Moses, to forsake having their Jewish children circumcised in accordance to the law. And all we need to know is this, that this is patently false. This isn't true at all. These are rumors that are flying around that are untrue. Paul has not taught any kind of non-observance to the law, but neither does he insist on observance where Gentiles are involved. Paul, Paul never goes into a community and sees the Jews getting saved and says, now you've got to abandon all of the law completely. You just have to get rid of it as if it's un- unimportant altogether. He never does that. But he also doesn't walk into a, a Gentile community and see people come to Christ and tell them, now, now you not, not, now you embrace the law and start practicing what the Jews practice. He hasn't done either of those things. You see, just so long as the law isn't being thrust upon anyone for the purpose of salvation, that's what the Judaizers did. That's what stirred up problems and led to Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council. There were Jews who were coming in and mandating, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to follow the law so that you can be saved. As long as none of that's happening, Paul's good. But what we see here is that there's potential here now in the church where Jew and Gentile coexist together for great disunity and great disruption And that's a huge problem. By the way, that's what rumors do. Generally speaking, that's what rumors do. They they serve the purpose of the devil to breed discord and disunity, and they often cause great destruction in the body of Christ. The Word of God speaks much about the problem of slandering and gossip and how that sin is so damaging. The greatest problem with those sins in the life of the church is the potential to destroy the unity that Christ himself wants the church to demonstrate to the watching world. But there's a principle here that I think we can glean from this text as well. You see, the more you stand for Christ, the more your character will be attacked. I I think that's, that's simply a general axiom in the Christian life. The more you want to stand for Jesus Christ, the more you want to step out in faith in your workplace, the more you want to put your faith on display in your community, with your neighbors, maybe with your unbelieving family members and friends, the more you do that, the more you want to speak for Christ and live for Christ, the more potential there is for you to be attacked for Christ. And, and you need to get used to this. As a Christian, listen, your character will be attacked. People will be meticulous and scrupulous in, in trying to sift your life and to show the character flaws. And, and when they can't find them, they'll simply just make them up. That's what they do with Paul. By the way, that, that's why character qualities are critical for spiritual leadership. When you read through 1 Timothy chapter 3 in Titus, chapter 1, and you read about the qualifications for an elder in the church, a leader in the church, you'll notice that it says very little about the job description, that the primary focus is on the character qualifications. Because it's the life of the believer and the leader that is on full display, and there should be nothing that somebody can grab a hold of and attack 
The less there is to attack, the more they'll have to make up. Uh, one of the things I think about when it comes to the Christian life and, and, and godly character, listen, is this. There are, there are character flaws in every one of us, and, and our character assassination is commonplace, especially in the Christian life. But one of the things I think is we, we as Christians do well to do is, is to just think, when, when somebody attacks our character, we need to be able to back up and say, is it true? Is it true? You know, if something throws something at you and it doesn't stick, that's fantastic. If it doesn't stick, it's fine. But, but the, the problem in the Christian life is when somebody throws something at us and it actually sticks, right? There's actually something to it. And I think God oftentimes wants to expose what's going on in our hearts and lead us to paths of righteousness, and sometimes he'll even do that through our enemies. But the goal in the Christian life is that no matter what somebody throws at us, it, it doesn't stick, so the question now for Paul and for the church there is, what are we going to do? Verse 22, look at it. It says this, what then is to be done? All these rumors are flowing, flying around Paul, and, and, and this is going to be a problem, listen, because the Jews want to attack Paul. I mean, they're not on his side. And so this is just literally giving the Jews ammunition to attack Paul and to destroy the church. It says, verse 22, that they will certainly hear that you have come I mean, there's a big problem here, Paul. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, they come to Paul and they say, we have a solution for you, Paul. We, we can get around this problem. We can show them um, that you actually do care about the law. So they want to put these rumors to rest. They are trying to protect Paul in this. You need to see that. I think their motives are pure. Some people have suggested that, that these suggestions are inappropriate, they're wrong, they're sinful, that, any, that Paul's uh, actual uh, agreeing to this is sinful in, in, in a compromise. I don't think that's the case at all, and I'll, I'll show you that. It's interesting, though, that they present this option, and we see here that Paul actually embraces this. The suggestion that is presented is that Paul shows some respect for the law. They bring some uh, four men forward, and they say, these guys have taken a vow. Now, Paul, it would be a really great display of your appreciation for the law if you actually pay their expenses. This is no small expense, by the way. It's likely that the vow that these four guys have taken is a Nazarite vow, uh, which the book of Numbers talks about. And the idea there is they're putting off uh, any kind of alcohol. They don't cut their hair, and they don't touch dead bodies, which is probably a good thing anyways. Um, for uh, 30 days. And so here, they're finishing off their vow, and there's a very formal way to do that. The regulations are spelled out again in the book of Numbers, and so they say, Paul, like there's some sacrifices that need to be made and some things that need to be done, so they're like, Paul, you pay their expenses. Welcome back to Jerusalem. And thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. See, rumors squash, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law. Now, then they suggest that Paul be somehow included in this vow. And again, there's a lot of debate over what Paul's doing. Did he embrace this Nazarite vow? What exactly did he do? We know earlier in the book of Acts chapter 18 that Paul himself took a vow. So Paul's not opposed to taking vows, even Old Testament-style vows. But what we do see here is that Paul somehow enters into this vow himself. This is likely some kind of a, um, a week-long vow that Paul takes for Gentile uncleanness as he approaches the temple. There was a process that they had to go through to cleanse themselves, to then go into the temple and go through the, the rituals there. 
At any rate, regardless of what's happening, you need to see the, the point of the text is that Paul is seeking to put the rumors to rest. And that what is really amazing here is the way Paul humbly submits to these leaders. I, just, I find it fascinating. This is the Apostle Paul. This guy, I mean, I mean, if you want to stack up this guy's accomplishments, if you want to stack up this guy's credibility, I mean, and just kind of determine who is the one who should decide what should be done here and who should capitulate to who, it should probably be the other way around. Paul has an incredible, incredible resume to put forward, and here Paul doesn't put up a fight at all. At least the text gives us no indication that he has any objection. He simply wants to do what they think is best. He knows that they have to live with the outcome of this beyond him being there. I just, I love that Paul demonstrates this great humility to the Jerusalem leaders. He is a leader of leaders, and yet he is so willing to come under leaders and submit to them. What a mark of humility. And I think this is so staggering because I think if we were to put ourselves in Paul's shoes, and if we were living out our sinful fleshly desires, what we would say is there's no way I'm doing this. Are you kidding me? I gotta pay their expenses. I gotta go through all these rituals that I don't have to do, all, all because of these rumors, really? That's how we're gonna handle this situation? See, our sinful flesh says my way, not your way. Like I said, some people think that this is a compromise on the part of Paul, that this is unconscionable for Paul to somehow reinstitute the law, but that's not what he's doing here. In fact, this lines up with Paul's philosophy of missions and his philosophy of uh, treating the weaker brothers a certain way. And in fact, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 15 and flip forward just a couple books there. I just want to remind you of Paul's approach to ministry. What he's willing to do. In verse 19 of chapter 9, Paul says this, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. See his heart? And you say, how, what does that look like, Paul? To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I love the heart of Paul. You see, Paul says, I am free. I don't have to act like a Jew. I don't have to go through the rituals. I'm allowed to eat bacon, praise the Lord. But, but, if it is a stumbling block, if it prevents the gospel from moving forward, if it harms somebody, uh, I'm not going to do it. I will gladly set aside my rights, my liberties, so that the gospel may be advanced and move forward with power. My way does not trump God's way. My rights do not trump the gospel moving forward. Paul is simply acting here with cultural sensitivity to the Jewish context. That's all he's doing. Without compromise to the gospel, by the way, he is not imposing this he's, uh, as a means of salvation. He is not declaring that this is necessary for salvation. He's doing this, listen, for the sake of unity. 
This isn't uncommon. We, we saw this example in Acts chapter 16 where Paul takes Timothy, uh, who's half Jewish, half Greek, and he circumcises him so that when they go into Jewish towns, he's not an obstacle and he can be heard by the Jews. I just, I just think we need to embrace it. Paul didn't have to do this. He didn't have to do this. He chose to do this. He could have stood his ground and said, this is ridiculous. Why should I have to accommodate them? It is so often our prideful resistance and fighting for our own personal rights and liberties that produce unnecessary friction and disunity in the body of Christ and in our relationships. We have a wide variety of freedoms, of liberties in the Christian life, but sometimes the expression of liberty can actually be counterproductive. Paul's principle should be ours. Love trumps liberty every time. Gospel advancement trumps our rights every single time. Humbly submitting is a mark of unwavering character. Humbly submitting is a mark of unwavering character. Notice this secondly, humbly suffering, not pridefully reacting. Humbly suffering, not pridefully reacting pridefully reacting, this is what unwavering character looks like. If there's ever a test of our character, it is in the furnace of suffering. Verse 27 through 36, look what happens. Again, uh, good motives don't necessarily mean good outcomes. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. That wasn't for prayer. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribunes of the cohort that all Israel was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune, the soldiers, and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Paul returns to the temple a week later to complete his vow. And almost immediately, a riot breaks out. And it breaks out predominantly, again, around the rumors that had circulated. I mean, he was in the process of trying to rectify that he wasn't opposed to the law of Moses, that he was respectful towards the Jewish customs. He was doing that. He was in the process of completing that. And yet they throw it back in his face. And then they falsely accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple courts, which was a big no-no. That was not allowed. It would defile the, the holiness of the temple to bring a Gentile past a certain point in the temple. This charge confirms for them that Paul doesn't follow the law, and this again is just a blatant lie. It's, just, it's utterly false. What they're doing to Paul is unjust. But look how out of control this gets. 
I mean, they, they charge him, this mob mentality. They rush at him. They lay hands on him, the text tells us. You can see this, this escalating. It's so out of control. They're seeking to kill him. They bind him with chains. The mob is crying out, away with him, away with him. I, I read this, I don't know about you, but reading this, it's, it's mildly infuriating to watch, isn't it? Or to read as somebody is so unjustly treated. This kind of injustice should, should make us righteously angry. But in my flesh, as I read this, isn't there a part of you that says, Paul, fight back. <laughs> Paul, don't take this. Paul, you, you, you can't let them do this to you. You can't let them treat you this way. Would you simply react and do something? Save yourself. Fight back. And then the, the Holy Spirit reminds me in my sinful, prideful reactions that this, simply what Paul is doing here is just like Jesus. It's just like Jesus. And the parallels are unbelievable. The, the injustice, the mob mentality, the yelling, the shouting, the wanting to kill him. It is exactly like Jesus. Sometimes it doesn't matter how unwavering your character is or how good or right your motives are, suffering for Christ is just inevitable. It's a reality. When we are unjustly attacked, the question is how will we respond? Will we respond in a fleshly way? Will we respond in our sinful pride? And will we react and, and try to fight for ourselves? In our suffering, and especially in unjust suffering, as we look out at the world, maybe you ask, your, ask this question sometimes, God, why are you letting this happen? God, why do you let Christians suffer for your name's sake? I don't understand. In 1965, Richard Wormbrand was freed after spending 14 years in a hell on earth known as a communist prison in Romania. For what? For the crime of being a Lutheran pastor. He was gaunt and haggard when he was released from the years of pain and torture that he endured. At the time, no one knew of the atrocities being committed behind the Iron Curtain. Prisoners were branded with red-hot irons. They were hung upside down repeatedly from a pole while their feet were beaten into a bloody mass. They were locked into narrow closets with metal spikes protruding from the walls. For religious prisoners, there were special tortures that they devised, humiliating means of torture. Wormbrand told of pastors being forced to give the Lord's Supper in the form of urine and feces. He endured the worst trial of all. He spent three years in solitary confinement in a cell 30 feet underground. Three years, all by himself. This man had suffered and had come through with a new spirit. When he was released, he spent so much time in, in churches. There was one account I read of him as he walked into a church, and he just into a church one of the first times after he was released into a Christian church, and, and he saw children being taught the Bible openly without persecution, and he started weeping uncontrollably. 
He just couldn't believe that people were allowed to teach the Bible in public without being persecuted. His character was a testimony to the biblical principle that suffering is the crucible that tests the quality of a person's faith. Did you know that a fundamental way in which Christian character is strengthened is by stress? One of the fundamental ways God wants to strengthen your character is through stress, it's through circumstances, it's by squeezing you and pressing you. It reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It's on the screen behind me. Peter writes these words. He says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your trials exist and your suffering exists to test the genuineness of your faith, to test it and to refine it. Our personal holiness and character development is one of the reasons for the trials we experience as followers of Christ. God knows what he's doing. Suffering and trials expose, they refine, and they display your character, listen, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Most of us don't like tests, especially if they involve pain, right? We we don't enjoy suffering, but what we need to see in the Christian life is that growth actually requires it. Here's the point, listen, difficulties, trials, opposition, suffering, together they constitute one of the chief instruments that God uses in the process of refining, sanctifying, and strengthening his people. He throws us into the fire of affliction and like gold in the refiner's furnace, he uses it to bring out the impurities in our lives, to bring them to the surface And then to draw them off. The friction God builds into the Christian life is therefore not accidental. The stress and the circumstances in your life, they're they're not an accident. The suffering that you may have to experience for Christ, it's not an accident. That's good news, by the way, if you're a follower of Christ. You you can see God's hand all over this. Instead, it is deliberate, it is strategic, and it is intended to produce growth and holiness and opportunity for gospel advancement. And that's what's happening with Paul. And we, we, we don't see it if we're kind of zoomed in too close. We could ask the question, what's going on here? Like, why? Why, God, are you allowing them to, to beat him unjustly? Why is he being arrested and bound? What's the purpose in all of this? But as we zoom out and we know the, the whole story, we see the bigger picture, and we see what God will do with the Apostle Paul, the platform that he will have to advance the cause of Christ, we can be sure that this is no accident. Sinclair Ferguson has a a great quote on this. He says this, if you ever wonder why the Christian life turns out to be so hard and why many Christians find themselves saying, I thought I had difficulties before I became a Christian, but I seem to have even more since becoming one, then here is the answer. God is doing nothing less than changing you from what you were to what he means you to be, making you more and more like himself. But in our fleshly, prideful reactions, we often 
find ourselves rejecting or pushing back against the very means that God has brought into our lives to produce the character and life of Jesus Christ within us. We look at the trials and we hate them. We ask God, why did you bring this into my life? We resent the fact that God would allow us to suffer when meanwhile God is saying, I want to use this as a means of my grace to chisel you out of that brick of stone, that unrefined piece of stone, and I want to produce something in you that I could not produce otherwise. If we embrace this, listen, church, this is, this is where the rubber meets the, ro- the road here. If you embrace this mentality that suffering is actually ordained by God to make you like Jesus Christ, you can go through suffering with your eyes fixed on Jesus, trusting him completely, believing that it will end up for your good and for his glory. We can suffer well. I just want to give you just three practical things to consider when you suffer. Three practical things to do when you suffer. Here they are. Here's the first one. When I suffer, I need to ask God what he wants to accomplish in me. And this could be suffering for Christ. This could be suffering because he took a stand for the gospel. Or this could be simply, listen, suffering because life is hard, but because we live in a sin-cursed world and things are difficult and you're going through some challenging times. This could be suffering even because you brought it on yourself because of your own sin, but now you find yourself having to live with the consequences of your own sinful decisions. When you find yourself in suffering of any kind, of various trials, the first thing you need to do is ask God what he wants to accomplish in me. Secondly, seek God for what he wants to accomplish through me. Seek God for what he wants to accomplish through me. I think of the countless saints who suffered. I think of Richard Wormbrand. And listen, while he was suffering for 14 years, he had no clue if he was going to make it out alive. He had no clue that he was going to survive. He had no clue what God was going to do with his life. But listen, when he came out, he began to write and publish books that have been read around the world. His story went far and wide, and his testimony has been a catalyst. I, I talked to, you know, we're planting a church in Romania, and I, I asked, uh, I, I, one of the reasons why I know about Richard Wormbrand is because I, I asked the pastor, uh, Pastor Yosef, tell me the biggest influence on your life. And you know, I'm expecting to hear some kind of mega church pastor of our day. And he throws at this name, Richard Wormbrand. I'm like, who's that? He's like, oh, this, this man. You have to read what this man has written. You have to hear what this man has done. He suffered under the communist regime here. He was persecuted greatly for his faith. And he has been one of the single greatest catalysts to the evangelical church in Romania. And behind the Iron Curtain. But you know, at the time he was suffering, he didn't know that God was going to use this as a platform. I think sometimes, listen, one of the ways we make it through suffering is when we stop and we ask God, we seek God. He said, God, I don't know why. I don't know what exactly you're trying to do. I want, I want you to do your work in me, but God, would you use my suffering and would you give me a platform to put your glory on display here? Third thing here is trust God for what he wants to accomplish for me. And that really is one of the keys to suffering well. We need to be, regardless of the outcome, regardless if it may cost us our life, regardless of the pain, we, just, we need to trust that God is wanting to do something for me. He is wanting his power to be put on display in my weakness. He is wanting his plan to be unfolded, not only in my life, but beyond. He has purposes for what he's doing, and I simply need to trust him. Thirdly, Here's how we grow an unwavering character, by humbly speaking, not pridefully responding. By humbly speaking, not pridefully responding. 
Paul has been bound. He's been brought before the tribune, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. The mob, ultimately, in this instance, is not going to rule the day, but Paul is now being brought before the powers that be. Verse 37 says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian? Then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, and I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Again, after suffering a massive beating and incredible injustice. I don't think we would blame Paul for simply responding in a way that protects himself. I don't think we would blame Paul for declaring the unjust nature of this attack. I don't think we would blame Paul for saying that what has happened is against the law. I don't think we would blame Paul for saying, I'm going to sue these guys for what they've done to me. And yet what we see unfolding here is that Paul is in no way thinking about himself or his own rights right now. He's in no way concerned about his own protection and preservation. All he cares about is that he gets an opportunity to speak to the people about Jesus Christ. Paul is far less interested in responding in a way that would only benefit him. I think so often our response when we've been unjustly treated and Maybe we've, we've been abused. Maybe even just put yourself in a personal situation where you were treated poorly, maybe by your spouse, maybe by a friend, not even for something noble or righteous. And how our inclination is to respond in our prideful flesh and to lash out at somebody and to not put up with that. And here we see Paul puts on a clinic on how to respond in humility. He speaks up so that he might even benefit his enemies. Isn't this powerful? You got to think, these people have just, Paul is probably in incredible pain. He, He was rescued from a beating by a mob. He's probably bleeding and bruised. Maybe he even has some broken bones. And, and, and yet his approach is so, do you see this? He says, may I say something to you? It's just so humble and gracious. His, his demeanor is just this, this beautifully humble, Christ-like character. They confuse him. They don't know who he is. They don't even know why. They're as confused as anybody as to what's going on and and they don't understand that he's actually a Roman citizen, and they, they confuse him with this Egyptian who was responsible for some kind of revolt that led to 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Uh, the, the history tells us that the Romans went and they tracked down this, this renegade Egyptian who had stirred up a revolt, and uh, they killed a bunch of his followers, hundreds of his followers, but this man fled, and so they think that maybe this is him. Maybe they finally got this Egyptian 
Paul's, Paul says, look, I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm from Tarsus. I'm from a pretty important place. And again, just notice, notice how he speaks here. It's so humble. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. This is staggering. The very people who just beat him, who are responsible for all his pain, he is begging just so humbly to simply speak to them. He wants to look his enemies in the eye and instead of pridefully responding with some kind of reaction, you know, just vengeance and declaring how foolish they are and I hope God curses you. That's how often how we want to respond. He wants to stand up and what we will see is he wants to stand up and offer his enemies the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul demonstrates that proper representation of Christ in the gospel is of far greater importance than our own personal freedom. So many Christians do so much damage by how they speak the truth. I I really think that so many Christians believe that the, the Christian motto for our speech is to speak the truth in anger, not speak the truth in love. How much damage is done in our relationships by how we speak? How much damage is done to our witness by how we communicate even truth? We can have incredibly prideful responses that will decrease our influence and lose our hearing. You see, what are some examples of some prideful responses? Well, here, you can probably um, think back to the last time you got into an argument, and you can think probably pretty clearly about the kind of responses you may have given for your actions and your behavior. Let me just give you a couple examples of prideful responses, uh, justifying responses. You know, somebody wants to address something in our life, and the first thing we do is get our back up against the wall, and we justify our behavior and why we think our actions are right, even when we know they were blatantly wrong. That's prideful. Here's another prideful response. When we, when we uh, uh, get hurtful in our responses towards others, somebody speaks to us a certain way, we want to speak back to them in that way. We want them to feel tenfold what they have done to us. Here's another kind of a prideful response. Attacking an individual's character, going at them and tearing them to shreds. There's all kinds of prideful responses, and some of them we would look at Paul and say, Paul, that's, I, I would not have responded like you but let's learn from Paul and let's learn how to speak humbly. Just, just notice Paul's graciousness. Notice his honoring speech. Notice his words are few, but they're careful and they're thoughtful. Notice that his speech is driven by a love. You can see that. He, he wants to speak and we know what's coming, the defense he's going to make for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just wants them to see Jesus. Paul will end up leveraging the legal system here. Rightly so. He has an opportunity to give him the chance to go ahead and speak to the people and a hush comes over the crowd and he will stand for Jesus. He will stand and definitively declare the hope of the gospel, all that Jesus has done, and he doesn't care what's going to happen to him. He simply cares that these people have their eyes pointed and fixed upon Jesus. But the way in which Paul speaks here, the character that he demonstrates, the kind of attitude that he exemplifies, it enhances the gospel's credibility. Here's what we need to embrace, church. Because he doesn't look like many others who might do whatever it takes to escape and to flee. The humble character of Paul shown here is part of the testimony to those who do not yet appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a powerful statement 
that will validate so much of what he has to say. I mentioned last week that Paul, as we look at Paul, one of the things we do is, is we, we have a really powerful example of someone who just teaches us how to walk so faithfully for Christ, how to live a life so clearly for Jesus Christ. But I mentioned this last week, and, and it bears repeating. All of this, listen, the parallel of the trial of Paul, all of this is paralleling the trial of Jesus Christ. The character of Paul that is impeccable, that is unwavering in this instance, only parallels the even greater, a more impeccable, more unwavering character of Jesus Christ. This whole scene really should remind us, as Paul would say, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ, again, becomes the example. Paul, yes, an amazing example of a sinful human being walking in step with the Spirit of God. But his example, make no mistake about it, is Jesus Christ. Christ, who humbly stood trial, who was unjustly beaten and accused and mocked, but had no discrediting conduct. He had no prideful response, not even once, no prideful reacting taking place in the life of Jesus. No prideful resisting in the life of Jesus. He stood humbly, humbly speaking, graciously loving all the way to the end, even offering the hope of salvation to the thief on the cross who mocked him, right? right we have two, two presentations of the thief on the cross. The first one is that both of them mock him and berate him and try to humiliate him. And Jesus, in his grace, he just stands, he hangs, excuse me, with humility before the people in utter shame and humiliation, hung on the cross, paying for the sins of the world. And the example of his humility is embraced by one of those who was his enemy and who mocked him, who turned to him and put his faith in him. Jesus, who hung humbly, speaking humbly, suffering and humbly submitting to the will of the Father. And this is, church, this is a, what a sweet place for us to end our time this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion. And I, I want to just remind you of what I know is a familiar text to many of you. As you prepare your hearts for communion, let me remind you of the humility of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, that's how we know that Christ was such a model for Paul in his own life and ministry. Listen to how Paul exhorts the church. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 